0: Hear now the word of the Lord. Now, from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, Lema, Sabachthani. That is, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders, hearing it, said, This man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly this was the Son of God. There were also many women there, looking on from a distance, who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, give us illumination by your spirit tonight as your holy word is read and proclaimed. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We live in confusing times. We literally don't know what's going to happen in a week or so. Many of us, when we've had plans, now maybe can't picture our lives so clearly even a year from now. Maybe some of us, we've stopped even bothering to predict what our lives would be like a week from now. The securities of the world are shaken, and I believe it's because we long for something more steadfast, more secure than what this world will have to offer. Some of us have looked to our leaders in our nation's government, the world's government. And you might have thought, if I were them, I would not have done it this way. If I were in those people's positions, I wouldn't have done this. And when you start thinking like that, I wonder even if you, as we have read this passage Couldn't you have also thought, if I were God, why would I let this happen? The most precious son of God has been mocked, ridiculed, slandered, scourged, beaten, torn to shreds, crucified on the cross. And it still doesn't stop there. And you might be also thinking, if I were God... But the truth of the matter is you are not a world leader. And if you were, I don't know if you'd do anything really that different. But here, just because we want something to stop, it doesn't necessarily stop, does it? When you start reading this passage and you see the torment that Jesus is going through, it doesn't stop, does it? The Bible just doesn't stop where you want it to, just like life doesn't either. Just because you say, enough already, doesn't mean anything stops. But it's important that we go through the scriptures because there is one who is sovereign and powerful and is in control And that's what we will be reading and exploring here tonight. There are three sections in this passage. And I want to go over these three sections with you. Number one is Jesus on the cross. Number two is the effects of the cross. And number three is the people of the cross. So Jesus on the cross, the effects of the cross, and the people of the cross. So what is going on here? Here. There are three hours of darkness. This is not an eclipse. An eclipse does not last three hours. But three hours of darkness. And it tells you the time. The time is from noon, which would be where the sun would be at its peak or zenith, to 3 p.m. From noon to 3 p.m., there is darkness. Here we already know that Jesus had spoken three times, and this is what is going on. And so you might be wondering in this suffering, in this torment, in this torture and crucifixion, where is God? Where is God in this darkness over the world? And we, when we look at scripture, we'll see that God is coming on the scene with darkness. God is often talked about and spoken of as light. You need not just just simply go on the computer and Google it. God is light and you'll see a million verses in Psalm 27, in Psalm 18. First John 1.5, it says, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light. And in him, there is no darkness at all. Of course, there is no darkness in God. However, do we see in the scriptures God move in darkness? And the answer is yes, even as early as Genesis 15. And in Genesis 15, when God makes a covenant with Abraham, it says, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abraham, and behold, Dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. See, during this covenant, dreadful and great darkness fell upon Abram, and this is God coming to Abraham in a vision. So darkness is there when God is moving. And I really like this particular passage because in verse 17, it says, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot, and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. One of the most amazing verses in Genesis, and that's when the Lord makes a covenant with Abram. But you see, as the scriptures are written, as God continues to give his divine prophecy we see that there is something called the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is mentioned many, many times in the Old Testament by the Old Testament prophets, and it's an expression of divine judgment. In Amos chapter 5, verse 20, it says, Is not the day of the Lord darkness, not light, and gloom with no brightness in it? The day of the Lord is darkness. And in Amos chapter 8, verse 9, it says, And on that day declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. The day of the Lord is an expression for divine judgment. In Joel chapter 2, verse 10 to 11, it says, The earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? All of this is pointing to the final judgment. God is revealed in this darkness. Why? Zephaniah chapter 1 verse 14, it says, The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. The prophets spoke of divine fury and wrath unleashed by God and shone through darkness. Darkness then, we see here, is the ultimate form of God in judgment, So what happens in the three hours that darkness surrounds the land? For three hours, hell has come down to Golgotha. And Jesus received the infinite amount of wrath because his capacity is infinite. Of all the people that he would save, he took the wrath that we rightly deserved in that moment and at 3 p.m. it ended and after that we hear we see here Jesus with his fourth statement my God my God That's the first thing he said when the darkness ended. The judgment is ended, and you want comfort. He wants the comfort. After the three hours of darkness, there is a roar of dereliction, a bellow of desolation, and a cry of ruin. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because it is God's wrath in punishment without comfort. That is hell. It is the only time in the Bible that we see he didn't call him father. He says, my God, my God. If you've come along with me for the past many years, anytime there is a double expression or a repeat, it is an emphasis. It's like putting an exclamation mark. And with names, it is for an emphatic, affectionate response. Listen to when Jesus says the names twice. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing? Jesus again says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Again, when Jesus calls out names twice, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. The repeat of a name when used by Jesus was used to convey deep notions of compassion and affection. And here Jesus uses it to convey the deep affection for God. And this was with a cry, with a loud voice. Even after the horrific physical and mental abuse that Jesus has undergone, and it is horrific, he didn't raise his voice. But this, after experiencing the wrath of God in its full form as it uh, descended upon Jesus, the full punishment for sin that Jesus took for his sheep, his people, the eternal death, infinite hells that Jesus had endured and this was his descent into hell, Jesus would cry out with a loud voice, Why have you forsaken me? The ultimate agony is expressed by Jesus in these words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's just the two verses. And in verse 47, some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. So Jews had a tradition. They believed because of Malachi chapter 4 verse 5, which says, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So they knew a great and awesome day. So they had this tradition that before or during some hardship, Elijah would come and help them. Now, this isn't in the Bible. This is a tradition. They get it from Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. And some of the bystanders hearing it said, you know what? Maybe he's calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and this is also translated as vinegar, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. You see, this is still mockery. Sour wine or vinegar would have prolonged the life of Jesus. Why would you prolong the life of someone suffering so much? Because they wanted to be entertained. Maybe there was uh, more room to mock. Wait! Wait! Let's see whether Elijah will come to save him. But in the very least, they did not put their trust in Jesus. They still wanted to wait and see. And if you even think about it, Elijah should have come before the day of the Lord, not during or not after. And it goes to show that no matter what you show people, the unbelieving will be left in their unbelieving state, even if something like this terrible darkness would descend upon the land. Like I said before, Jewish tradition also taught that Elijah, because he never died, would come and rescue people in times of crisis. They didn't believe that Jesus was really righteous But what they wanted to see was, what is he going to do next? They didn't believe him. And that's where Jesus' words still ring true, when he said, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. So after giving Jesus wine vinegar to drink to prolong his life, Jesus cries out again, Remember, he was supposed to live longer, but cries out again, and this language is very purposeful, he yields up his spirit. In John chapter 10, verse 18, Jesus is the one that said, no one takes it from me, meaning his life, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again, this charge I have received from my father. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And so he yields up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were open and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and all those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and what took place they were filled with awe and said truly this was the son of God. There are three sections the three things that happen in this second section with the latter two of the three flowing from and pointing to the first point. So I'll get to that. And behold, look, the curtain of the temple was torn into from top to bottom. Top to bottom, the, the curtain was torn into. The curtain was 20 cubits high, which is 30 feet high. And it was rent from top to bottom because it was torn from above. What the curtain signified was the separation between man and God. You couldn't go into the holy of holies. The curtain signified that separation. And if you were unworthy, meaning any man, anybody that would go today they would just die. Only one person was admitted once a year, the high priest, and a lot of times he died. And so when this curtain is rent from top to bottom, what this would have reminded people as they're reading this, remember, look at the time, look at the season. This is Passover. The Passover lamb that was sacrificed reminded the Jews of the angel destroyer. And the angel destroyer would pass over the house that had the blood of the sacrificial lamb on their doors. But this is a prototypical Passover lamb. This means that it pointed, this is pointing to a consummate lamb. So this prototypical lamb of this Passover pointed to the consummate lamb, and you see the consummate lamb is Jesus Christ. This is what we call the expiation of Christ on the cross, and the expiation of Christ on the cross, we have the wrath of God being assuaged. God is propitiated. What that means is now there is no more separation between God's people and God. The Passover lamb, the consummate lamb that is Jesus Christ, has now rent the temple curtain in two and the separation is gone. There's no more wrath for people. And there are two signs that Matthew points to to help us understand what this exactly is. There's a great earthquake, and it was so fierce that the rocks would split open. That's a powerful earthquake. A great earthquake, so fierce, it would split open rocks, and it would have been reminiscent of the judgment day to the Jewish listener. It is the fulfillment of, of Jeremiah 10.10. 10. In Jeremiah 10.10 10 it says, But the Lord is the true God, He is the living God and the everlasting King. At His wrath the earth quakes and the nations cannot endure His indignation. The second sign that we see here is interesting because it's noting what happened after The resurrection. The tombs open and the bodies of the saints, not just random people. Remember, this is not just random people, but these are bodies of the saints. The people of God were raised up and they went and appeared to many. So what the expiation of Christ does for us is that it makes a way for us to God to do something that has been impossible to do since the first Adam sinned he made that way for us to go through his death because through his death death, he had received the full wrath of God and resurrection. That's what these two events signify. On one hand is Jesus' sacrificial death which takes away our sin, defeats the power of evil and death, And on the other hand, the opening of the tomb signify that through Jesus' victorious resurrection and vindication from the Father, there is a promise of final resurrection for those that die in Jesus. Matthew puts these two events together to show us what the rending of the curtain meant. And so after seeing all these events, the centurion, who would have been a leader of about 100 soldiers and the, and the soldiers around him, saw this, and it is out of their mouths they exclaim, truly, this was the Son of God. This is what the high priest tore his robes over. But this Gentile pagan would confess the mockery that the Jews continued to sustain even after the darkness, the Roman soldiers that were keeping watch, they noticed that this is no ordinary execution. And after witnessing all the surrounding events, the Jews still mocked, but the centurion confesses, truly, this was the Son of God. Which leads us to our third and final point. There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him. By the way, these are imperfect verbs, so followed, ministering. That means they continue to do that. Among whom were Mary Magdalene, and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and Mary, the mother of the sons of Zebedee, which in Mark we see her name is Salome. One could possibly read over these two verses without much thought, But following truly this was the son of God, this is a very, these are very deep verses. It has very deep implications on how God works and how his sovereign will is enacted. After the confession, we immediately see a picture of the woman there. And this is not by coincidence. It's not some random insertion It's there on purpose. And we see that they had to keep a distance. They had to keep a distance because, well, number one, they weren't highly regarded in Jewish society. And it would have been dangerous for them to go any closer. But these are the women, and some are named because they're not just random women. And these women watched from the very beginning of Jesus' life to the very end, to the very bitter end. And there is a descriptive for them, right? Who were these women? They had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him. In the Bible, only two groups are credited to have ministered to Jesus. And the first one is angels. In Matthew four eleven, after Jesus had gone through the temptations of the devil... It says, then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. And here is the second group. Women who had followed Jesus from Galilee, who had ministered to him. These were not apostles. These apostles were all men. They all fled with their tails tucked. These were God-honoring women whom God would honor by having them then be the first witnesses to the resurrection. And the scriptures ring true. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. You see, the women, even though society regarded them as nothing not even second-class citizens because, remember, they were women from Galilee. That's even worse. But they functioned as holy angels. And they will be rewarded because they will be the first to see the resurrected Christ. And here is the hope that you see here in these two verses. Their mourning will be turned into joy. This is the promise of hope for people of the cross. You see, even in this dark, dark time, God shows us that for his people, that hope is never fading. It will never end. It will continue and it will endure and it will be fulfilled because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Because of what Jesus Christ has done for us, no one can take that promise of hope away from God's people. And God's people are secure because of what Christ has done for us. What no person could ever endure, Jesus endures an infinite amount. So that we can be secure in him. During this Good Friday, we call it Good Friday be precisely because of what Christ has done for us. And I hope that we will remember this weekend that no matter what happens in the world, even though the earth would quake, we are secure because of what Christ has done for us. No matter what is going on in the world, we are secure because of what Christ has done for us. This incredible promise is given to the people of the cross. And we have this incredible honor to continue to minister just as these women did To minister to Christ by ministering to each other. This is not a time to cower in fear, to stay away, but it is a time to remember the promise that Christ has given us and to proclaim his goodness by ministering to his beloved. And this is why we do what we do. You may have received packages. If you didn't receive a package, call my number. We'll get you a package. But you may have received a package from us because I want to remind you it's still a time to minister to people. There is never a time that we stop ministering until Jesus comes again. This is a promise that we've been given, and nothing will shake it because God's word is sure. And I'm going to ask that if you're listening to this message, continue to pray, don't give up, continue to minister. Don't give up. Continue to grow in your sanctification. Don't give up. Because this is the promise of hope for the people of the cross. This is Good Friday because it truly is good. Let's pray. Lord, what we couldn't even fathom, you took on our behalf. And we are here because of what you did for us on the cross. We are undeserving. We are the ones that mocked. We are the ones that did not believe. We are the ones that weighed the things of the world heavier and greater than what you had to offer so many times. But Lord God, we come to you now with hearts of contrition, asking that you would forgive us and take us back as your people. Lord, we don't want to be a church that continues to falter and stumble as if walking in the darkness, but Lord God, in faith we want to walk knowing that you have taken that wrath and we are called now to be people of light. Lord, help us to meditate on this incredible, deep, and profound moment Not just this weekend until Easter, but for all of our days, so that we can be true ministers to you and to your people. Oh God, empower your church with your Holy Spirit. Give us understanding, illuminate our minds, and give us hands and feet that will love you and will love others, just as you loved us. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all now and forever. Amen.